0: Uh, Genesis chapter 15, I will again read the whole chapter because it's not very long and it's uh, salient to everything that I'm going to talk about uh, this morning. So Genesis chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, fear not Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle-dove, and a young pigeon." And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the mists, and laid each piece one against another. And the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram dove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, And shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall I come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Canaanites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmorites and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephraims and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his people say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that as we work through the latter portion of this section, that we will see the gospel, that we will see Christ, all of the things that he has done, the irrevocable promises of God that are in Christ, and that we enjoy the benefits of being his children and being indwelled by him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, Again, I want us to recall to mind in this section that there are two covenants that are set before us here. And it's important for us, I think, that we be able to separate between these two two covenants. It's important for us to um, know which promises apply to us. The unconditional promise is the everlasting covenant which sometimes is referred to as the new covenant, and separate those from the old covenant, the conditional covenant. Those do not apply to us, but the ones that apply to the elect of God are the ones associated with the everlasting covenant. So with that in view, in this chapter, we're going to see that there are two promises to give land to some people. The question is... How is the promise made? How is the promise carried out? Uh, To whom does it apply to? And what is required to be the recipient of that particular promise? We see that one promise is via an inheritance to Abram. That's in verse 7, where the Lord says that he'll receive the land via an inheritance. The other is to his physical seed, which we understand to be national Israel, and that we read about in verse 18 and what follows from that. And we notice that it has physical dimensions, It is from, that land is from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river of Euphrates. And now if you were to open up a map and take a look at that land there, that includes Israel, what we know of Israel today, which is, um, but a small portion of it was during uh, David's day. Um, It includes Jordan, it includes Lebanon, it includes Syria and parts of Iraq. Those nations are encompassed by that geography that goes from the river of Egypt to the great river, Euphrates. That was the land that the Lord promised to the seed of Abram. That's different than the land that he's going to receive by inheritance. It's much smaller. In Romans 4.13, it teaches us and tells us that the land that was promised to Abram and his seed um, that they would be heirs of the world, the promise that he would be an heir of the world that 's the world word that 's used as cosmos in romans chapter four thirteen so in god 's own commentary he 's telling us that what is meant in verse seven of Genesis fifteen is the new heavens and the new earth in Genesis chapter fourteen, as I mentioned last week, it twice tells us that God is the possessor of heaven and earth, and certainly as the possessor of it his heirs would receive it upon his death. And that we certainly do. Now, the land that's given to national Israel is given in a conditional covenant. In order for them to receive that land, they have to be obedient unto God. It was given by virtue of condition. In Joshua chapter 21, verse 43, in Joshua 21, verse 43, we read, and the Lord gave unto Israel All the land which he swore to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. So I want you to appreciate in the book of Joshua, when Joshua has led them into the promised land, he's telling us that God gave them everything he said he would give them. He promised it to them, even though it's conditional. He gave it to them, even though they were disobedient. He gave it to them anyway. In Joshua chapter 23, uh, towards the end of the book, where he's fixing to make a speech to them about their idolatrous nature, he says in Joshua 23, I'll read verses 14 through 16, he says, And behold, this is Joshua speaking, This day I am going the way of all the earth, and ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass, and not one thing hath failed thereof. So he's reminding them, God gave you promises, and he fulfilled every single one of those promises to you. Verse 15. By the way, that's verse 14 is where most most, uh, people stop when they're preaching about the Jews. Verse 15. Therefore, it shall come to pass, that as all good things are come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, So shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he hath destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. In other words, you possess the land by virtue of a conditional covenant with God, and just as I gave it to you and fulfilled all the good promises, I'm going to take you off of it and fulfill those promises too. I promised I would take you off the land if you disobeyed. Verse 16, When ye have transgressed the covenant... Of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods, and bowed yourselves to them, then shall the angel of the Lord be kindled against you, and ye shall perish quickly from off the good land which he hath given you. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that in Genesis chapter 24, he's going to lay out for them that they're idolaters. In verse 14, he says, Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. And serve ye the Lord. He's telling them right now they're idolaters and they are in violation of the covenant, and they have always been in violation of the covenant. They were in violation back in uh, Exodus, they were in violation when they were in Egypt in terms of their relationship with God. They have always violated the first commandment, having other gods before the Lord God Almighty. So you can count on verse 16 taking place. They're idolaters. God has told him through um, Joshua that he's going to take them off the land by virtue of their disobedience to him. So, now, what I want us to do is step back a little bit from Scripture, and I want us to appreciate this, is that God ever subjects himself to the same conditions he subjects the people to. Nobody ever on this planet that has ever lived has ever suffered anything that the Lord himself has not suffered. People go, are cast into the lake of fire on the last day of judgment by virtue of their own sins. God spent an equivalent uh, equivalency of eternity in the lake of fire by virtue of our sins. So don't ever think for a minute that God is unjust and he's just going like, to throw somebody else into the lake of fire. It's something that he himself will never have been subject to or experienced Whereas, in fact, not only um, will he suffer or has he suffered on our behalf, but he suffered extraordinarily more because it's collective. He's suffering for the entire sins of the church. And we know from Scripture that there are degrees of punishment. God is a just um, judge, and he does not give somebody something that is not merited, uh, punishment that is not merited by the sins they've committed. So he suffered far greater than anybody else. So we should appreciate that Christ Jesus is always subject to the things that we read about in the conditional covenant here. Jesus was made of a woman, made under the law, and he was always ever subject to the law, uh, which he must needs keep if he is to receive the promises that were granted to him from God. And there's a glory in that. We read about the glory of the um, old covenant, um, so that when Moses went up to the mountain and recalled that he came down and they couldn't look upon his face for the glory of the law. Well, there's glory in it. It testifies of the righteousness of Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, tells us about Christ being made under the law. It says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. So God subjected himself to the law. He was made under the law of a woman. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and pay attention here, if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so you should have the Spirit of God Christ in you so that you should, when you cry up to Abba Father, you can appreciate the relationship that you have with him and that you are indeed an heir of God through Christ. So big picture parallel here now with respect to the land here. There's a principle that is set forth in the scriptures about how man is removed from the land because of sin. Now, we see the promise of God in Genesis to give land to national Israel, and then with continuing revelation we appreciate that certain conditions are set forth for them to remain on the land. And then we saw in Joshua twenty four, sixteen, a promise of God to remove them from off the land when they transgress the covenant. Now we know in Second Corinthians one twenty it says, For all the promises of God in him That is to say, in Christ are yea, and in him, Christ, amen. All the promises of God in him are yea, and amen, in Christ. So whatever promises are made to Christ, we receive them in Christ as those uh, in whom he indwells. So stepping back, looking at the first man, Adam, we note that he is placed in a garden that was planted by God, and because of sin, he was removed from it. And as man went out and spread throughout all the earth, what did God do because of their sin? He drowned them all. He removed them from the face of the land in the Noahic flood. And we move into national Israel where we see the Lord working with a particular people and we see that they're given the land conditionally. They have to keep the law in order to retain the land, and failing to do so, what do we see? We see that God removes them from the land because of their sin, because of their idolatrous way, and he uses the Assyrians and the Babylonians to do that. The fact that they occupy but a tiny portion of the land that was originally given to them is indicative of the fact that they are walking in disobedience with the Lord. They are continually vexed by their neighbors, and God might very well wipe them completely off the land one day, but he's just given them a little foothold there. But they are walking in disobedience, and they are not in possession of the land from the river of Egypt all the way up to the great river Euphrates, nor are they they occupying but a a portion of it that we knew to be... um, um, that we saw them i don 't want to call it the Davidic Kingdom because the Davidic Kingdom went all the way up to the River Euphrates, and you can find in the scripture portions where he went up there and ensured all of his borders were in fact secure, but Nevertheless, when we think of Israel, we think of it as in scripturally speaking larger than the geography and the geographical footprint it um, it uh, displaces today. Um, however, they occupy just a small portion of it. We know that eventually. God's going to remove all men from this earth because of their sin, and he's going to destroy this planet entirely. So in conformity with the law, now step back here. We're going to see the gospel because we're going to look at Christ. Christ himself, because of our sins, was removed from the earth when he was nailed to the cross and lifted up from the earth because of our sin. And what we read in Joshua 23, 16 applied to him. Quote, he perished quickly from off the good land which God had given Israel. So we see this wonderful parallel in that the promise to remove them from the land because of idolatry, because of sin, Christ bore on our behalf. Because of our disobedience, our sins were imputed to him. He was lifted up off the earth, and he perished quickly. You recall that Pilate uh, was surprised that Christ was already dead uh, he was dead before they broke his legs, and he was dead, of course, because he gave up his life, um, and it was not taken from him, but he perished quickly from off the good land which God had given to Israel. Now, in contrast to all of the things that I'm sharing with us here, we see that Abram is given land, which, again, is the cosmos in Romans 4.13, by an inheritance. He receives it through a different means than national Israel would receive their land. It's unconditionally given to Abram, from Abram's perspective. Christ has to accomplish things, but Abram has to accomplish nothing. Inheritance, this inheritance is made possible through the obedience and through the death of Christ, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Now, due faith, which is a gift of and a gift from God, Abram's sin was imputed to Christ And the righteousness of God was imputed to Abram. Same thing is true for all of us today. Salvation, the methodology thereof, has never changed. It's a faith. It's a gift of God and a gift from God. Now, why do I use that language, that it's a gift of God and a gift from God? Because when we receive the gift of faith... We receive it from God, but ultimately in the context of salvation. What we are receiving is God himself. We are receiving Christ because only he is faithful. And the faith that we exercise is directly related to the gift of Christ that is given unto us. The scripture tells us that. So God is giving, not only giving us faith, um, um, but he is giving himself. And so that's what the Lord has in reference here to in Genesis chapter 15, when he says, I am thy exceeding and great reward. Galatians 2:20 tells us about we don't live by our faith, but we live rather by the faith of Christ. He says, "I am crucified with Christ; nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me; and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me." And I would add to that, not only gave himself for us, he gave himself to us. So, we live by faith. We live by his faith, and Scripture tells us in Hebrews twelve two that Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the author and finisher of it. And indeed, he's the very substance of us. This is faith that he gave to us when he gave himself to us. Now, as I mentioned last week in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 15 that God preempts Abram's question about what wilt thou givest me when he tells him that he is his exceeding great reward. So there is consistent with what I'm sharing with you, is that God tells Abram he's going to give himself to Abram. So we can understand and appreciate this, that in two ways, as I mentioned last week, uh, primary in the context here, we have an understanding that God will give himself to die in Abraham and our stead do sin. But ultimately, and this is where our salvation is in an ongoing sense, is that uh, in greater revelation, we will appreciate that the Bible will help us to understand that the great reward we are going to receive would be God himself, giving himself to live in the heart of the life of his elect. You know, Scripture tells us that our body is not our own, but it's a temple of the Holy Spirit, which God hath given unto us. And so by this means and by this agency is man made righteous. He's made righteous by the indwelling presence of God. As I mentioned during the fellowship time last week, that the absence of sin does not make a man righteous. The chair, there is no sin there, but the chair is certainly not righteous. Conformity to the image and likeness of God does make a person righteous, and that can only be true if God indwells a man, and when he does so, the man is said to be a, quote, partaker of the divine nature. That's 2 Peter 1.4. We are a partaker of the divine nature, and righteousness is certainly the nature of God. So we are, enjoy that through, by virtue of the fact that he indwells us. Now, you recall from Jeremiah 23.6 that that is one of the names of God, quote, the Lord our righteousness. That's the name of God. One of the names of God is the Lord, our righteousness. Now, we should appreciate uh, experientially so, and also certainly doctrinally so, that we have a proclivity to sin. It is the nature of man to do so. And I have another bee in my bonnet when people say that God took on the nature of man. God did not take, off, take on the nature of man. Scripture says that he was made in the form of of a servant and in Romans 8 3 it says that he was made in the quote likeness of sinful flesh but he did not take on our nature we by nature are sinners and scripture says that in him was no sin he did no sin and he knew no sin it is not his nature to sin now with respecting our nature second Peter 2 22 says but it has happened unto them, which would be the natural unregenerated man, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So remove a man's sin from him, clean him up and set him on a pedestal. And what will he do? He'll fall back in the mire. He'll return to his vomit because, again, it is our proclivity to sin. Scripture says in Job fifteen sixteen that... We drink iniquity like water. (laughs) We drink iniquity like water. That is the nature of man. It is only Christ in us, God's righteousness in us, because of God's indwelling presence that we are righteous, and then he regenerates us and gives us a new heart where we desire to please God and don't flop back in the, um, the mire Uh, like we would have done had we were unregenerated and God did not indwell us. I'm not saying we don't stumble in sin, we do, but we don't drink iniquity like water anymore, having been regenerated by God. It vexes us uh, because it grieves the Holy Spirit that is within us, and so we desire to please God, we desire to not sin anymore. Again, with respect to righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, for he that would be God hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So it's by virtue of our unity with God through Christ that we are made righteous. Now, I know that's a lot to be understood from what we're getting out of Genesis chapter 15, but like in every portion of scripture, it says that, you know, no scripture is of any private interpretation, and so you have to rely upon a broader understanding of what the Lord presents for us throughout the entirety of the Bible to appreciate what's taking place here in Genesis chapter 15. So God says that he is our exceeding great reward, and I assure you that there is no greater reward than a man can receive than to receive God. It says here that the air that shall proceed out of Abram's own bowels, as I've shared with you, that that would be out of Sarah's womb. And I also want us to appreciate that Abram doesn't understand that, even though that's from the basics of scriptures, comes back from Genesis chapter 2, where he's one flesh with his wife. He doesn't get this, and sometimes the most basic understanding of things can, or the most basic misunderstanding can lead to great trouble. So what follows Genesis chapter 15 Genesis chapter 16, where he lies with the concubine and creates, I don't know, 4,500 years of violence and misery in the Mideast because he failed to understand the simplicity of what it means to be one flesh with his wife. So, but again, that's our Christian experience too. As we grow in the grace of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a better understanding and appreciation of Scripture and more are more inclined to lean to on and look to the promises of God and less and less on our own um, understanding of things. So, um, he has been told here that it's going to be through a death, that he's going to receive this by virtue of an inheritance, and so we understand that to be the death of God himself, that through the death of God himself, Abram will inherit the cosmos, as a joint heir with Christ, because the heir is going to come out of his bowels, and we know that that's going to be Christ, because it's in him that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And as I had mentioned earlier in one of the scriptures, we should appreciate that we are joint heirs with Christ, as indeed are all of the elect. Christ is the inheritor of all things, and we, uh, as his brother, are joint heirs with him. And Romans eight seventeen again, sets this before us. It says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, And joint heirs with Christ. What Christ inherits, we inherit. Remember, all the promises of him in Christ are yea and in him amen. So we want to keep our eyes on what things Christ will inherit. Take your eyes off this world and the foolishness, the temporal things, and keep your eyes and look towards eternity. Scripture says that the visible things are temporal and the invisible things are eternal. So keep your eyes heavenward. Now to help us appreciate or develop a better appreciation about what is in view here, about what the Lord intends for us to inherit respecting the land, that it is in fact the new heaven and the new earth. Just imagine what a foolish thing, what a, a vain thing it is, what an empty thing it would be if the Lord were to die to secure for him and himself, him and us, an inheritance that God's going to then burn up and dissolve and, get, and destroy. I mean, that's just the, the epitome of, of vanity. Second Peter 3 uh, 10 through 13 talks about how when the Lord comes, when the day the Lord comes, he's going to burn up the earth and the works therein, and the elements shall melt with fervor and heat, and then all things are going to be dissolved. What a silly thing it would be for Christ to die to a secure an inheritance that he's then going to burn up and destroy. So obviously the new heavens and the new earth are what is in view in terms of our inheritance here. So keep that in mind uh, that what the Lord does always brings to fruition and what he has in store for us is something very, very wonderful indeed. Now, moving forward in Genesis chapter 15, I want us to appreciate how the gospel is set before us here in terms of how Abram will know that he's going to inherit the new heaven and the new earth. What he first does is he sets before him the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ Jesus, and I want us to appreciate as we go through Genesis. You're going to see everything that uh, can be found uh, in far greater detail and degree uh, in the law when you get to Exodus and Genesis. Excuse me, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. What he has set before us here are as the um, the burnt offering, the sin offering, um, that which is used for cleansing, and uh, for dealing with the iniquities of the people, for both people that sin willfully and people that still sin ignorantly. All of the sacrifices that we read about in Leviticus can be boiled down to what we see set before us here. And being that we're going to celebrate the Lord's table this morning, those are things certainly worthy of meditation. Now, first we note that God instructs Abram to slay the animals. He tells them what to do, to take the animals and to divide them in half. And those, of course, represent the substitutionary offering of Christ himself, which Abraham has already been been engaged in. And we saw that actually began in Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord himself uh, slew an animal and clothed Adam and Eve. And then we see it, of course, with respect to the sacrifice of Abel, an offering that the Lord Accepted because it pointed to Christ and the wages of sin is death. So, Abraham knows these things. He's been doing it for a while, but now he's told to take these um, five animals total, three specific, he divides in half, and then he puts two birds here. And we notice that the animals here, the larger ones, all happen to be three years of age uh, by God's instructions. And so, we should appreciate that it was in the third year of our Lord's ministry that he was crucified and slain. It was on the third year of our Lord's ministry that he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, by all these instructions that God had set forth ahead of time, and he was taken by wicked hands, crucified and slain. Now, what is Abram's participation in this? He's got the wicked hands, so he's gonna be the ones who's going to slay the animals when he cuts them in half here. Now, as I continue with this, I want you to keep this in your mind here. If you look over at verse 18, it says, The same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. The word made there in the Hebrew word is cut. You actually cut a covenant, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But that's what's taking place here. He's cutting a covenant, dividing the animals in half here. Now, after he does this, after he cuts the animals and they're laying, the carcasses are laying on the ground, we see that the next thing that he does here is he has to chase away the fowls of the air, which we know from the parable of the sower represent the wicked one, represent Satan that would come and try to snatch away and devour the gospel, the words that were preached in people's heart. That's what comes immediately after you preach the gospel is Satan comes around and he's represented by the fowls of the air. We know that because that's what the Lord tells us in the parable. Um, so what he's doing here is he's defending the gospel. He's defending the um, faith which was once delivered unto the saints. It speaks about that in Jude chapter 1, verse 3. He's earnestly contending for the faith, which is the gospel of common salvation, meaning the salvation methodology has never changed. And so he's, there he has to do, he has to defend it to keep the fowls from taking away portions of the things that have been set before him that represent Christ. And so in every age and in every day, men have had to do this. They've had to defend the simplicity of the gospel as it is in Christ. From Abel all the way down, Satan and his minions would endeavor to undermine the gospel. They would deny who Jesus was. They would deny his divinity. Divinity. They would deny that he was not God manifest in flesh. They would deny or claim that he didn't die or that having died, there was no resurrection because his body was stolen from the tomb. There's always something that they seek to attack with respect to the simplicity of that Christ, you know, died for us, he was buried for us, he rose for us, and he ascended for us. So if you get back past the very basics of his divinity, his death, burial, and resurrection, then they would claim that you have to do something to contribute to your salvation besides your wicked hands. So they would have to tell you that you would have to have uh, faith and some acts of charity, some good works. You have to contribute something for your salvation to merit God's favor. Well, they would tell you that the faith, I mean, they'll go so far. They'll say, well, the faith is really your own, that you are the one. The belief originates and generates from within you, and that is the source of the faith. Not Christ, not God, but rather you. You heard the gospel. Uh, you made an intellectual ascent. Yeah, that sounds like uh, something that I can get my sink my teeth into. You and that um, it relied upon you to do so. And then once they get you there, well, then or if you're there, then they'll tell you, well, you know, now you can lose your salvation if you don't uh, walk in perfect conformity to the moral law. Well, then you can uh, lose your salvation. That God who uh, found something meritorious in you when He saved you, you know, there's something in you that, why well, if if that is gone from you, then He would then. Um, um, uh, push you out of his kingdom. That, of course, we know all is false and, um, and not true. Um, so people endeavor to attack the gospel of, of Christ, the simplicity that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So all of these things, all of these attacks upon the uh, gospel are always really attacks on God and on Christ in particular. And they would undermine or seek to undermine the sovereignty of God And the rest we enjoy in Christ and try to shift that, some of that, a portion of that sovereignty unto you as though you can override God's will in your life. That God can't save you if you don't want to be saved. And having saved you can lose you if you jump out of the palms of his hands, you know. And he says, of course, that no one can take you from my hands. We are safe and secure in Christ. And so what is man doing, of course? He's really dethroning God and placing himself upon the throne because he's saying, no, you're not sovereign, but I am. I can, I'll can. i determine whether or not I'm going to glory or if I'm not going to glory. It rests with me, not with you. So in verse 12, we see that Abram has successfully defended the gospel. We see that as the sun goes down and as the day star, I'm adding here, the day star, of course, is Christ. When it sets beyond the horizon, we see that a deep sleep comes upon Abram and a horror of great darkness falls upon him which is indicative of eternal death, eternal separation from God. Now scripture tells us of a truth that all men are in bondage to fear of death. That's Hebrews two, fifteen. All men are in bondage to fear of death. You know that because when you go to these old folks' homes, people are take one medicine after another to try to prolong their lives. It's a great profession to go into if you want to always have a secure income, is to be in the healthcare field because people being afraid to die will do everything they can to extend their life. Satan knows that to be true. He says that, yea, all that a man hath will he give to save his skin. So people um, eventually transfer their wealth from their estate to the American Medical Association or those associated with the healthcare professions. So all men are in bondage to fear of death. They know that ultimately, the scripture says, after um, death, It is appointed on a man once to die, and then after that, the judgment. So they can appreciate that they're afraid to die because they know something about the characteristics and attributes of God because God has showed it unto them, Romans chapter 1. And through the creation, we can know these things, so they do know these things. So they have this, in their subconscious, they have this fear of of death. Um, Scripture tells us that when they're judged and found wanting, that they are cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there they shall remain for eternity, which indeed indeed is a horror of great darkness. Now, what we see then following in the next couple of verses is this kind of a prophetic interlude with respect to that which concerns national Israel and Abram in particular. In verse 13, he says unto Abram, Know of a surety, that thy seed, which will be national Israel, we know that from continuing to read in the Bible, what's in view here, shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. So God's telling them they're going to go into another place, which we know to be Egypt, and they are going to be there for, they're going to, excuse me, they're going to be afflicted 400 years. People think this is a um, contradiction in scripture because they have a truth. The Israelites were 430 years in Egypt. However, they were 400 years as slaves, 400 years afflicted, serving their Egyptian taskmasters, serving and suffering affliction at the hands of their Egyptian taskmasters. We know that, of course, came true. In verse 14, we read that God will judge the Egyptians and bring his people out with great substance. Which we know that the Lord does through the ten plagues, He destroys that nation. He destroys their agriculture. He destroys their military so that they become a base of nations. He destroys them. Now, when the Israelites left Egypt, the Lord gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and they left with jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. Quote spoiling the Egyptians. You can read about that in Exodus twelve thirty-five. They spoiled the Egyptians. God told them to go borrow from their neighbors, so they went and got all sorts of gold and silver and change of clothing, and off they go. The, the uh, Egyptians, uh, desiring that they would depart and take the Lord with them. Um, this we know when it comes time to build the tabernacle in the wilderness is. God took a free will offering and people gave them the gold and the silver that they had freely received. They freely gave unto the Lord. So where do you think they got all? Where do you think slaves, 400 years of slavery, how much gold and silver do you think that will will get you? When they were in the wilderness, of course, that is what they used to build the tabernacle. So the gold and silver, the Israelites, we know, gave to God in a free will offering to make the articles of worship in the tabernacle. Then we get to verse 15. We read that Abram will go to his fathers in peace, which in spite of all the hazards of the land and the hostilities of the peoples, he does. We know he's afraid for himself because that why that was why he had an agreement with his wife, Sarah, that uh, he would say, and they would say, they would agree that she was his sister and not his wife because he was afraid for his life. He does the same thing later in front of King Abimelech, so we know that he's still struggling here. He's received these promises of God uh, in a vision, although not... Um, Tangibly so, and so we know that he's still going to have some troubles here. In verse 16, we read that the Israelites will then come into the quote promised land in the fourth generation when the iniquity of the Amorites is full, and they will dispossess them as they bring judgment in. God will use the Israelites to judge these people when their iniquity is full. And we've talked about that before. That that's representative of. The world, God waiting until the iniquity of the world is full before He brings His people in at the end of time. Now, all of these things literally came to pass as the Lord said they would. And all of these things, though they needed many years to come to fruition, would certainly give us reason to trust God in everything that He says or does. When you read through this, and God says that what things were written aforetime were written for our comfort that we through patience and the comfort were written for our learning, that we through comfort and and patience of scriptures would have hope. We read these things that what happened to the Israelites, we read about the promises God made to them, we read about the fulfillment of those promises, how he walked with them and protected them, and know that he does the same for us. God does everything that he says he will do. So again, as we struggle with the issues of life, as we look around this country and this world, we should read the promises of God and rest in Christ. Everything is under control. Um, as we read earlier in Joshua twenty-three fourteen, that not one good thing, not one of the good things which the Lord God has spoke concerning us has ever failed us. It will all come to pass. Not one thing will fail in spite of ourselves. And that was what he was telling them. In spite of the way you people have behaved yourselves, All of God's good promises have come to fruition. And indeed, as his chosen people, as the elect of God, in spite of ourselves, everything, all these wonderful promises will come true. He says that in Romans chapter 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Not even yourself will separate you from the love of God. He will never leave us nor forsake us. All of the promises will be fulfilled for us on our behalf in Christ. We can rest in that. We just need to be patient. Now, in these same verses, there are spiritual truths um, which are set before us here. It's another one of those times when you need to take about three steps back from the Bible and look at the big picture here because God is setting before us the panorama of salvation. And in spiritual context, we see in verses 10 and 11, where the lamb is slain from the foundation of the world because that's where the surety of our internal inheritance starts. It starts in Christ. Revelation 13, 8, he's the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So this whole process starts, this is how you're going to know, it starts in the in the, um, in the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It starts with the, um, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In verse 12, we see... The fall of man, the deep sleep and the horror of darkness that comes upon man. In verse 13, we see our pilgrimage in this world and our bondage to sin. In verse 14, we see judgment whereby we are freed from the bondage of sin. Remember, what did they have to do to be freed? They had to slay a lamb. So it speaks of the judgment of Christ in terms of freeing us from the bondage of the, from the house of bondage, our bondage of our sin, and they leave with great riches as indeed do we leave with great riches associated with Christ. Ephesians 3.8, and there are other scriptures which give more details, I'm just throwing one at you, where it says, speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. We, as beneficiaries of what Christ has done on our behalf, when we receive Christ, we receive unsearchable riches of Christ, and we now wear the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. Uh, Isaiah 61.10 speaks about things. What things we have, we freely received, and we freely give to Christ, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. We have received salvation freely, we've received regeneration freely, and so we freely offer ourselves um, unto Christ. It's a free will offering. Now, verse 15, we are going to go to our heavenly Father in peace. So it speaks of that as well. And then in verse 16, it's an allusion to the final judgment of the earth when we come with the Lord into our inheritance and in the, when the iniquity of the earth's people is full. For as Christ is judge of all things. We who are in Christ judge with him uh, by virtue of our position in him. So we see this wonderful panorama of um, of uh, the experience of man um, throughout the beginning to the end when that uh, scripture refers to there shall be time no more. Uh, we have all of this set before us here and all of this is refilled to Abraham when he's in a deep sleep. So, and throughout the course of time, as the Lord saves his, his people, he searches what is in their hearts and he refines them and he purifies them for his service and for eternal fellowship with him. And this we see in verse 17, when it speaks of a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passes between the animals that Abram cut in half. With the exception of the birds, all of the animals are cut in half, revealing their inward parts, and we know that it is upon the inward Heart of man, it is upon his heart that man looks. Scripture tells us very plainly in Hebrews 4 12 and 13 that he, the Word of God, which is Christ, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Says that neither is any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of whom we have to do. And the Lord knows what's in us, certainly. He's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And our deacon read for us Psalm 139, which speaks about how the Lord searches us and he tries our hearts, sees if there's any iniquity in us. And whenever he finds iniquity in us, of course, he deals with us, he deals with it. And so we should appreciate that Christ knows Every sin you have committed, every sin you are currently committing, and every sin that you will commit, and he has dealt with every single one of them. You don't need to think to yourself, well, I wonder if he knows about this particular thing, so that when I'm called before the throne of grace and of glory, he's going to be like, find something that wasn't dealt with. No, it's all been dealt with. Our security, uh, I mean, our salvation is secure in him, and isn't it a wonderful thing that while we were yet sinners, he died for us and he loves us. So in spite of everything that he finds in our heart that he deals with, he indeed loves us. So we see a furnace coming through here uh, going between the uh, animals that are cut. And we should appreciate what a furnace is used for. A furnace is used for purifying gold and silver. You know that the refiner would melt, take the metal up to its uh, melting point, turn it into a liquid, and all of the slag and the impurities float to the surface that would then be removed from the refiner. So in Proverbs seventeen three, we read, quote, in seven, Proverbs 17, 3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. And so he's teaching us here this wonderful... Um, Oh, it's helping us to link the idea of a furnace with what the Lord is doing in terms of looking at the hearts of his people. He is indeed the refiner, and Malachi chapter 3 helps us to appreciate that. In Malachi chapter 3, the first three verses, the Lord says, Behold, I, as is God, will send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he shall prepare the way before me, that's Christ Jesus, and the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant. Christ is the messenger of the covenant and he is the covenant. Well, something I'll mention again here. In whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come. Christ shall come, saith the Lord. Verse two, but who may abide the day of his coming, the coming day of the Lord, Christ, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. He is the refiner, and he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. A fuller is one who bleaches um, fabric. He does. He's like both. He shall sit as a refiner. When you think of the description of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verses uh, 12 through 16, it speaks about him. It speaks about his eyes, how bright they are. It speaks about his countenance, how, how bright it is. It speaks about his legs like, uh, as though they're brass in a furnace. The refiner went was in the fire. So he is like a refiner's fire and like further soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and, purify, and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, meaning the elect, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And again, we present ourselves as living sacrifices unto God by virtue of the fact that he has purged us of sin and iniquity and therefore we would make that offering in righteousness because he has made us or he's conforming us to the image and likeness of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7 the Lord speaks of that again he says that the trial of your faith being more precious than of gold that perisheth though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So in the trials that the Lord places, places us in, he's working with our hearts, he's purifying us, and he's strengthening our faith through this process here. So he's here, he's likening, in First Peter, he's likening our faith to that which is purified and tried and strengthened uh, by the fuller as he would purify um, gold itself. Now as for the burning lamp, Isaiah chapter 62, 1 says, For Zion's sake... Will I not hold my peace? And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. So this is Christ moving between these pieces here. Christ himself is our salvation and it goes forth as both a furnace and a lamp representing Christ moving between these pieces here. I mentioned to you in verse 18 that he's cutting a covenant And we should appreciate the irrevocable nature of the covenant. The animals that were cut in half, um, the individual, just Christ himself goes between them. Abram did not go between the animals. Abram is not part of the covenant in terms of what he must accomplish. He is simply a recipient of the covenant. It says that he made a covenant with Abram, just like he made a covenant with us. And Christ, of course, is the covenant. We did not participate in uh, the covenant. We didn't make any agreements with him. It's all done by Christ. We will receive all of the benefits that are associated with the covenant. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 34, um, the Lord helps us to appreciate the covenant or how a covenant is made and what happens if you transgress the covenant. In Jeremiah 34, verses 18 through 20, the Lord says, I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me when they cut, same word as in Genesis there, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. So you made a covenant and the parties of the covenant would pass between the pieces that they have cut. The princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hands of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and their dead bodies shall be for meat unto the fowls of heaven and to the beasts of the earth. In other words, the covenant was cut, you pass between it. If you don't abide by the conditions of the covenant, you will be cut in half as were the animals. Matthew chapter 24, the Lord refers to this or makes an allusion to this about what he's going to do to the people whom he gave watch over his house. He says, who then is a faithful and wise servant to whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. He'll be doing the things that he agreed to do and the things that I gave him to do. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. That's if he's obedient. But and if that evil servant "...shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in that day, when he looketh not for him, and in the hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth." the Lord is laying before national Israel and indeed all preachers today that you'd better do the things that I have told you to do. You better take care of my sheep better take care of my elect because if you don't do that, when I come, I'm going to cut you asunder and cast you into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So um, again, with what we see here in the scripture, again, it's all of Christ. It is everything that the Lord has done and set before his people He says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, we see these things come out, that it is the Lord have I called thee in righteousness, the Lord God Almighty has called Christ in righteousness, and will hold thy hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant Of the people for a light of the of the Gentiles. So Christ Himself was metaphorically cut when He was put on the cross. He was given for a covenant unto us, and He indeed is the light. An allusion to what we're seeing here in um, Genesis 15, where the lamp goes through these things here. So the Lord is our righteousness. He's the one that was cut on our behalf. We did not participate in the covenant. Only the Lord Himself is tasked in its fulfillment and must meet the conditions of it. So we should appreciate that uh, we are recipients of it and we have all of the blessings and God will, in fact, um, bring all of those blessings to fruition um, in his time. Now this section closes out in verses 19 through 21 and what we see there is if you get out all your fingers, there are 10 nations that are subject to um, the Israelites when they come back into the promised land and he's telling us, it's an allusion to what you read about in Revelation chapter 17 where it talks about 10 kings and these 10 kings will really uh, will be given unto um, unto Christ and his saints. In Revelation chapter 12, excuse me, Revelation 17 verse 12 it says and the 10 horns with thou sauce are 10 kings which have received no kingdom as yet but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Now the Lord uses the number 10 as representative for all of the all of the kings of the earth. These shall these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. They have one mind to be in opposition to Christ. They give their power unto the beast, and we know in in Psalm chapter two that the nations. Um, uh, why did the nations? Rage. Why, Rage. Pardon me. Rage. Rage and imagine a vain thing. Thank you. And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And so we see that in, a, in context here about how the world is in opposition to Christ, but they shall be given unto the Lord and his saints. These have one mind and shall give their power uh, and strength unto the beast, and these shall make more war with the Lamb, which of Christ, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful." So we can appreciate what he's telling us here in Genesis 15, that when the end comes, the Lord is going to be victorious and he will subjugate the entire world. Uh, Now, I'm not saying he's coming physically to rule from Jerusalem. Don't read that into it. I'm simply talking about when he comes on the day of the Lord, that he will put an end to all of this foolishness. And we will have the victory in Christ um, as he is victorious over all things. So as I close, again, I want us to appreciate the wonderful um, the wonderful gospel truths that are set before us here in Genesis 15, how that we are the recipients of this wonderful everlasting covenant. We are the recipients of all of God's promises. Christ was the one who is the covenant. He made the covenant, and he will fulfill the covenant, and we shall reap all of the wonderful benefits and glory associated um, with that. Now... I say glory, and indeed we should already be enjoying some of that. But we know, as it says in Romans 14, that the Lord calleth those things which be not as though they are. And so in Romans chapter 8, it says in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, them also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, moreover whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and them and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So the Lord is telling us here that we've already been glorified. I don't feel like it, but I know that he calls those things which uh, be not as though they are. So I know it will come to pass, because all of his promises do, all the promises of him uh, in Christ are yea, and in him, Amen. And with that, I'll say Amen. amen.